Hey folks, this is Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast. With me this afternoon is returning guest Randy Galky. Randy was the guest for the first Mirzargan episode all those years ago, and he returns now as we work to wind down the battle. Randy is the webmaster of the ever-excellent Mirzargan.com website and Facebook group which remains an invaluable resource when researching aspects of this particular battle. He's also the founder of Knee Deep in History, a battlefield tour company he runs with his longtime German friend, Marcus Klauer. Together, Randy and Marcus offer public and private tours of the Meurs-Argonne, San Miel, and other World War I and World War II battlefields with the focus and getting clients into the field and showing both the Allied and German sides of the battle. And speaking of that German perspective, Randy joins us this afternoon to discuss the German side of the Merzargon campaign. He will also be joining us for another episode on looking at the AEF in the Merzargon through some statistics. I'm so excited he's here on the show again, and I look forward uh, to getting into this conversation. So, Randy, welcome back to the podcast. I'm happy, to, happy that you're here, man. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you, too. Um, quick question. Before we, before we dive into the German Army, I was looking at your tour schedule, um, yes. and we've got hours going on as well. Are you going to be in the Merzargon in July, during the first week of July? Not in the Merzargon. I'll be, um, we have a private tour the end of June, first week of July for a soldier. Actually, we will be a little bit um, for a family that wants to visit their World War I experiences and World mm -hmm. War II experiences. They've got two two relatives that fought, one in World War I with the 3rd Division okay. and one with the 87th Division in the Ardennes. So we've got a private tour taking them to both locations. Nice, nice. All right. I was hoping, uh, I thought with your schedule, I was hoping we could finally um, uh, meet face to face and uh, like stop at the uh, Varen, the, the little tabak there. Uh, yes. But at some point we will. We definitely, definitely will have to do that. I'll also be up in Connecticut in May. Oh, so in May? Okay. Yeah, I'll share information with you on that. Oh, perfect. Thank you. All right. Excellent. All right. So this is a, so folks, Randy reached out to me, um, probably a couple of weeks ago talking about getting together to do another podcast episode. And it couldn't have come at a better time because I've long been thinking about how to address the German side of the Mers are gone. So with my German skills, such as they are, like I'm don't have a lot of source material to go with. Like I, I don't read fluent German uh, or excuse me, I don't read German fluently. Um, so Randy has some information here and this, and it comes at a perfect time. So we can go ahead and begin talking about um, the German side of, of the Merzargon battle. Um, and to begin with Randy, kind of zooming out, of course, can you give us an overview of the German spring offensives and how they led up to the launch of American attacks in the Merz front? Um, so we'll have to set, the, the Wayback Machine to March 21st, 1918 for this one. Even a little further back than that. Can you give me screen sharing rights and I yeah. will put PowerPoint presentation up? Sure thing. Let me see if that'll work. Looks like it is. Okay, cool. So let me switch over to that. 
And of course, this uh, screen is right in the way, but that's okay. Um, okay, you can see that? Yep. Okay. So this picture, just to start off with, um, it's a Griffin Group photo, and it says destruction along the Nantilwa-Kunel Road, Guadalcunel. So most people know Madeline Farm, um, and there's a reason why I selected this that'll become obvious as we get into the presentation. This is right behind Madeline Farm. This is along that road in the Guadalcunel, right behind Madeline Farm. Okay, okay, north, north of, of uh, Madeline Farm, correct? Just, just north of, yeah. Gotcha. Anyways, stepping back to 1918, you have to think about after four years of war that was so unimaginable that people never realized what it was like. Um, you know, the Germans actually were like looking optimistically in January, February, because with the Russian revolutions in late 1917 and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March of 3rd, signed March 3rd, 1918, the Germans actually had the ability to move a significant number of their Eastern Front troops over. And they moved about, um, I think uh, Zabecki says 48 divisions were moved over to the Western Front. And so they were preparing for a series of spring offensives. Um, hopefully one would have been enough, but we'll go into that in a bit. They were preparing for a series of spring offensives to hopefully bring about victory before the Americans got over in full strength. By March 1918, the end of March, only 329,000 Americans were overseas, had landed in Europe, and most of those weren't ready yet for combat. So this was Germany's chance to make it and win before the, uh, before the Americans came over in full numbers. Rifle strength, which is one number that we'll use, and you'll, I'll show you a chart in a little bit, um, was estimated um, on the 1st of April, so right when these offensives were going on, that it was estimated that the Germans had a rifle strength on the Western Front of 1.56 million. The Allies had a rifle strength of 1.25 million. So that was giving the Germans a ratio of 1.25 to 1. That's only one statistic, but that just shows you that this was probably the best shot the Germans had for ending the war before the Americans got over in numbers. Yeah, because usually when when you attack, you typically need at, at least about three to one ratio. Yes. Okay. And and the one thing that that rifle strength number doesn't look at, perhaps, um, which would be interesting to calculate in that numbers, are machine guns. Okay. And you know, so so it, it's looking at numbers of men. It also isn't a qualitative statistic. So. That, that's another thing to keep in mind. It's just looking at, at pure numbers, but, but you're, you're absolutely right. Anyways, the point being that this is when they had to do it because they knew the Americans were, it was only going to get worse from here. Whether, you know, how quickly, no one knew, but we'll get to that. So on the 21st of March, Unternehm and Michael began. There was a series of German spring offensives. Um, I'm not going to go into all of the details and all of them, but that was the first one very well known, it punched a huge hole in the British lines. Um, initial success, but no breakthrough. The, the lines still held and the Germans didn't win. Um, another one that we talk about is Blue Shirt. was from 20th of May to the June. The Germans advanced down to the Marne and was getting close to Paris. We, of course, call this the Second Battle of the Marne. Um, 
What did this do is this is the first time that American troops were thrown in to stop the advance. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The last of the offensives, there were really five major ones. And this, the last one was called Marnschutz Rheims, or um, that's the way the Germans pronounce Rheims or Ross, depending on what language you use. And that took place on the 15th of July. And that was a disaster, largely because in uh, French intelligence learned of the German plans and they were able to react. But if you take a look at this side, slide showing German casualties on the Western Front by various time periods, um, you can see the March to June, how huge the casualties were, dead and, and others, and then July, in, uh, July to November 1918. So you can see that yeah, that really was on the Western Front, absent 1914, the first open, the opening months of the war. That was the deadliest for the, uh, the Germans. Right. So the spring offensives didn't bring about the victory. Um, and so as a result, they did bring about several negative consequences for the German army. Germany lost a significant amount of men and material that it couldn't afford to lose. It exhausted the troops and officers that it didn't lose. The offensives hastened the arrival of American troops. It hastened the introduction of American troops in combat. If you think about March 21st, Unterneim and Michal, um, Cantigny, the first division's attack at Cantigny, or Cantigny as Americans would say it, that was 28th of May, and that was just a little attack. But what they were chewing at is taking off a little bit of that area that the Germans had advanced on in Unterneim and Michal. Okay. Uh, and then, as I mentioned on the Marne, um, you know, with American troops being rushed in, uh, and I think the biggest negative consequence from the spring offensives for the German point of view is Foch was named Generalissimo. Um, and I don't think we focus enough on him and his leadership, and I haven't focused enough on it either. But he saw better coordination among the Allies and their efforts. And the other thing is, once he sensed the Germans had exhausted themselves after Marnschutz rhymes, he immediately started counterattacks. So... What we Americans call the Ein Marne offensive started on the 18th of July, literally three days after the last German offensive. That's how Foch was thinking and working on things. Um, in early August, you have the British advancing at Amiens. So here's the significance of these two. At uh, the Ein Marne, 17,000 German soldiers were became prisoners. They were captured as prisoners. Okay. In early August. 20,000 were captured on the British sector, including 12,000 on August 8th alone, the day that Ludendorff would recall as the, the Black Day of the German Army. Mm -hmm. So in these two actions, 37,000 German prisoners were captured, and that's definitely a foreboding of what's going to come in 1918. So what you see by the beginning of September 1918 is the quantitative and the qualitative decline of the German army on the Western Front. And as the war continued, that decline, the rate of decline accelerated. Um, I'm going to stop here for now, and we'll get into some more details. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. Foch is, is uh, someone who needs a whole lot more studying. Um, I've always thought, um, th had similar thoughts as well. Like He finally, he had been thumping his ideas for years, and, and nobody was quite listening to him about, like, you can't attack the Germans here 
and then up here a month later, no, you know, you've got to do it all at the same time. So they have no time to react. And once we get into the the Allied counterattacks here in the summer and, and autumn of 1918, that's where you see that his plan was was correct, that the conditions were right uh, to, to see success there. So <clears throat> to to set the stage for where the podcast is right now. We are in mid-October 1918 in the Meuse-Argonne. Um, can you give us the command structure of the German army from the top down? Oh, my God. Sure. Right there. And it's a very busy slide. It's um, awesome, Randy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> not, not, the, not the prettiest, but it's got a lot of information. So, so at the top, you have the German high command, the Oberstaheresleitung. And then below that, you have army groups. So in the Mers Argonne, you, you had a split, you had the, um, I've got to take a real quick look. You had the Army Group Crown Prince and yep. you had Army Group Galvitz. So Army Group Crown Prince was really in the Champagne and okay. it extended a little bit into the Mers Argonne. Army Group Galvitz was from the Mers Argonne over through Metz. Okay. So the black lines separate your army groups. Um, and then the gray lines, if you go down one more level, you're mm -hmm. in the German Third Army, which was largely in the Champagne. Then the German Fifth Army, which was largely over the Meuse-Argonne region. Right, the Verdun Front. Yeah, and the Verdun Front. And then you have Armee Abteilung C, or Army, Army Detachment C, which was largely the Saint-Miel salient. And then for some reason, they've got this individual little group of Mets. Um, that's that's situated off there, and that was part of Army Group Galvitz as well. Okay. If you drop down another line, I give the roughly the uh, the geographic areas where they ran from. That's excellent. So, and then if you drop down the next line, you get to the Army Groups, and that would be probably a couple of generally a couple of divisions, two divisions or three divisions. Okay. That were in that responsible in that that were in that group, I didn't go down to the divisional level. Um, and you can see there's one little gray box here, um, Group Argon. Um, that was up until the 5th of October, that was part of Army Group Crown Prince. And then with what was happening around Exermont and up the Air River Valley and in the Argon Forest, that was switched to German 5th Army. Okay. And you can see there's a couple others that were in gray, um, Group Beaumont and Group Avena, um, and those were formed later and um, and inserted in the middle um, with new divisions that that came into the into the area. So that gives a bit of a broad thing. You were asking about the um, some of the changes too. Remember that Ludendorff announced his resignation, and it was accepted by the Kaiser on the 11th of October. So in the midst of the Americans finally getting somewhere with Pershing stepping back and Bullard taking over command of the First Army, um, here you have, um, you know, Ludendorff after probably a month of relative inaction and just inability to make decisions um, because he was just burned out. Um, he's now getting, he's now being replaced. The other thing is, um, on, there are some details on here. For instance, Galvitz was actually, for a while, he was head of the German Fifth Army as well as Army Group Galvitz. Right. 
And that was changed in, um, I think, the 27th of September. So, so you had a few other changes. But, um, but that's the big picture, what it looked like um, at that point. Right. Awesome. Now, so what, okay, so this is the big picture here. So what is the overall state of the German army in the Merzargon in October? Um, how did divisions and regiments look? And for, for, I guess for our listeners who may not always carry these numbers in their head, a German division was roughly around 15,000 guys, similar to, to British and French divisions. 11 to 12,000. 11 to 12. Okay. Right. Yeah. By this point in the war, Germany had um, you had three regiments to a division. And on on paper, a regiment would be about 30, 3,200, 35, 3,300. OK. Yeah. So and are these are these numbers anywhere near that at this point? No. And that's what we're going to take a look at a little bit on the German army as a whole. And I've got a couple of statistics that are for the Fifth Army alone um, that I really need a little bit more work on. I, it's been a long time since I've been in the archives doing some research. Mm -hmm. So this one is for the whole the German and Allied armies on the Western Front and its rifle strength. So you've got to take this with a little bit of caveat. Rifle strength, again, is probably the infantry units. It's not going to count your artillery. It's not going to count your special troops, et cetera. Okay. But <clears throat> as I mentioned in the, in the setup at the beginning, you can see that Germany started the war, started the spring offensives in March with more riflemen than the Allies, a ratio of 1.25 to 1. Um, that declined. So you can see by September, this chart shows absolute numbers. I'm talking, I'm just doing the math and putting them as ratios. By September, it switched to the ally favor of 1.25 to 1. By the 1st of October, it's not a huge loss yet, um, but it's a little bit worse. It's 1.3 to 1 in favor of the Allies. But you can see by November 1st, it drops down to 1.7 to 1. And that's a huge change. And that's largely because the Germans had no one. They couldn't replace their losses, really. Um, I mean, they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel to replace their losses. Whereas the Americans by that time were coming in a couple hundred thousand a month um, and, and getting into the front line. So that really shows you one measurement and how, in, especially in October, things deteriorated. If we go to the next one, this is just the field strength of major armies on the Western Front, 1914 and 1918. So just to put that in perspective... I'm going to go back for one second. You know, Germany on the 1st of November it had 866,000 rifle strength. This estimate here has 2.9 million men at November 11th. So, you know, there are a considerable amount of troops behind. Same with the Americans. The Americans here are listed only at 1.1, 1.2 million men rifle strength. But there were 2.2 million that had arrived in France by the time of the armistice. So that gives you a little bit of an idea. Um, I don't have a slide for the next bit, but Marcus Clower in his uh, discussion in um, Lingell's book, and we'll go into that later, he suggested that on paper, a German battalion would have 1,100 men, um, three battalions to a regiment. So that's 3,300 and then add a few other troops. So you get up to 3,400, 3,500. 
in reality, in early 1918, they had about 850 men. By in early 1918, by September 1918, they were down to 540 men. Man, and wow. by October, they were significantly lower than that. In one more data point, in late October, Crown Prince Ruprecht, and he was fighting up in the, uh, his uh, army group was up in the uh, Flanders area. He would write the German chancellor and he would say this, our troops are exhausted. In general, the infantry of a division can be treated as equivalent of one to two battalions. And in certain cases, only equivalent to one or to two or three companies. So a couple hundred men. In certain armies, 50% of the guns are without horses. The morale of the troops has suffered seriously and their power of resistance diminishes daily. They surrender in hordes whenever the enemy attacks and thousands of plunder, when they surrender in hordes whenever the enemy attacks and thousands of plunderers infest the districts around the bases. We have no more prepared lines and no more can be dug. There is a shortage of fuel for the lorries and when the Austrians desert us and we get no more petrol from Romania, two months will put a stop to our aviation. So that tells you by mid-October, mid to late October, how dire the situation was. Right. That's the word I was thinking. Dire indeed. Wow. So this next slide looks at prisoners captured. And this one is focuses only on the uh, prisoners captured in the BEF sector from mid-1917 to the end. And it's interesting because if you look at 1917 for a second, you can see the effects of, um, of Passchendaele in November of 17 and in October of 17. Right. But the real story here is August, beginning in August of 18, the huge numbers of captured. And so the first would be that Ludendorff's Black Day, the 12th of August, near Amiens. But then um, the end of August to the beginning of September, and the real big spike is the 24th of September to the 30th of September, that would have been the breaching of the Hindenburg Line as well, up near, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name now, up near the Somme. Okay. Um, and you can, you can see just how large that, how, how big of an impact that had on the morale of the German troops. So the Reichsarchive, um, one source I was looking at, suggested that um, from July 18th to November 11th, 1918, there were 233,200 Germans surrendered. But Altrichter, who is a German researcher, um, post-war, um, post he suggested um, 385. And this is a statistic that I've got that the Allies had from documents that the Allies had put together. And when you add all this up, you get to 395. So if you use 300 to 305,000 men surrendering July to November 11th, um, that's 10% of the 2.9 million German troops that were on the Western Front at the end of the war. And if you think about as, um, as a percentage of rifle strength, it's probably even higher because the people that are surrendering are the ones that are up there right at the front. Exactly. You know, facing the, uh, the Allies as they advance. So that's a, that's a huge number, a, a huge percentage. And we'll talk on that in one more second. Um, I've got one thing specific to the fifth army. I've got a couple data points and one is the, um, Alexander Watson in his book, he looks at the post Überwachung or the male censoring and he reads through, um, 
he, he found that in the German archives and he reads through what they're saying. So if we go back to January 1918, the majority of the letters written are convinced that the final piece must first still be bought with a great glow in the West. The men have the entirely correct feeling where Germany's most stubborn enemy can be found. The English must first still be beaten, and, sim and similar comments are read daily. By August of 1918, the censor is describing, he's characterizing the war as war exhaustion, moroseness, and depression. So that's the way that he characterizes the letters. He also says at that point, um, Already by the end of August, letters indicating intentions to desert to the enemy had multiplied to a frightening level. And this is what Germans were writing in their letters. Yeah, so there must have been um, – this makes me think that clearly these men knew their letters would, would be censored by the authorities, and yet they're still writing it like, I, I no longer care. Like, I, yeah. probably by the time you get this, I'll be in, in an allied camp. Almost, almost fatalistic. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and by mid-October, their, their, their expressions are, we can't do any more, we don't want to do any more, we want to go home. So that shows you just how much it changed. Uh, Marcus Clower, going back to the prisoners for a second, he, mm -hmm. uh, he had statistics from the Fifth Army. I don't know where he pulled this from. For 10 days in mid-October, he didn't say specifically what days, the Fifth Army had listed 24,937 casualties, including almost a third missing. Wow. So that that tells you, you know, that that's eight thousand, eight, eight, nine thousand missing. That's a that's a big number. So if you put it all together, Alexander Watson has written a great book called Enduring the Great War, Combat Morale and Collapse in the British and German Armies, 1914 and 1918. Probably my favorite book on this topic. And his closing paragraph reads as follows. The collapse of the German army in the second half of 1918. Thus came about not because soldiers were politically radicalized or disobedient, but primarily because they were too physically and mentally exhausted to continue fighting. Already by April 1918, the failure to defeat the British Army had caused depression among the other ranks. The highly successful Allied attacks in July and August also convinced the majority of junior officers that the war was irretrievably lost. The exhaustion and dejection of the German army combined to create apathy, not anger. Indiscipline at the front was made impossible by the fatigue felt by the majority of combat soldiers and unnecessary due to the fact that the officers, no less affected than their men, began to seek ways out of the conflagration. The conflict ended not by mass desertion or mutiny, but principally by an ordered surrender in which officers led their men into Allied captivity Human resilience, not military discipline, had finally reached its limit. So he really focuses and hones in on the surrender rate and the ordered surrender. And if you think about it, you know, you're, you're losing a per significant percentage of some of the few um, experienced officers and men that you still have left at that point in time. Okay, so this is awesome because I did have a question here later on about, you know, like what was keeping the German soldiers fighting. And um, we, we, you've kind of just, you've just addressed a lot of that. So well, and, they weren't fighting. Yeah, and, and exactly. And, and this shows, too, that, that they were aware of the political situation and everything kind of going here with my next question of like, how aware of the political situation was the... Um, 
the average German front camper. So they they knew what was going on. And, and you know, some of them continued fighting, of course, but like continued fighting out of uh, from a conscious obedience to the goal or or um, and fighting from a sense of camaraderie. Um, so if you want to just add a, a couple of more thoughts to that. Like, sure. Uh, um, I mean, the German press was still highly censored, even in the military, the, the Feldzeitung and the field newspapers and stuff. What okay. the Germans were great at doing, for instance, so they didn't know that much about the political stuff until the 3rd of October when the Germans made a peace offer, and that was picked up by the papers. Okay. Um, but what the German soldier did know was he felt the exhaustion from the first half of the year, and what he saw now was that his division, his division or his unit was constantly being pushed back. They were always facing energetic troops, especially on the American front. Um, and they were unable to, the division was unable to give its, uh, or the German army was unable to give its divisions and its soldiers time to rest and refit. That's kind of what the, what the German, uh, you know, what he did know. Um, we're going to go looking at these statistics. Actually, I don't have to change a page here. One of the interesting things with regard to the Mers Argonne is by the end of August 1918 and going forward, the Americans held 20% of the Western front line. A uh, little bit more than the the percentage held by the British, but they were pretty close together ever since then. Um, and if you take a look at the field strength on the 11th of November from the slide that I presented earlier, the German the AEF represented 29% of the Allied field strength. But you look at this, you run the math on the American prisoners, and only 40,000, um, I think it's 40,000, 48,000. Yeah, uh, prisoners were taken by the by the Americans significantly lower percentage. It comes out to about twelve percent. So, was this because the Doughboy was a less effective fighter? The Doughboy and the the leadership of the AEF they just weren't as good, and the Germans didn't feel as threatened. Was this because the German army held a more defensive terrain in the Meuse Argonne? Uh, third possible answer is the Germans had understood that they needed to keep the Sedan-Mezier railway to allow the um, the ex the uh, extraction of units on the from the Western Front as the German army retreated. And finally, were the Germans afraid to surrender to Americans? Um, one letter picked up by the censors in October. This German acknowledged that the mood of the infantry was totally devastating, but explained that rather than surrender. They immediately go back for all are frightened of being caught by the Americans in whose hands prisoners do very badly and most are beaten or shot to death. I don't know if that's true or not. My guess is it was the ineffective fighting ability of the Doughboy and the German defensive terrain uh, made the Germans feel slightly less threatened than they felt, let's say, facing the British. It, it's hard from one data point in one letter to say, yeah, the Americans were really that much worse, and and the Germans knew it, and so we're not going to, uh, you know, we're we're not we're going to continue fighting for that. So I'm not sure exactly why, but it definitely seems like the fact that a lower percentage of prisoners were captured by the Americans, um, you know, there there was something there that needs to be told or or, or explored a little bit more. It's interesting. I've I've read. I believe it was an account from. San Miguel, where a, a doughboy wrote that um, how they encountered German forces was, um, you know, at 30 yards away, the, the Germans are machine gunning, you know, actively fighting the Americans at, at 15 yards, 
something like they would surrender, and at zero yards, the German soldiers would be attached to the AEF unit for rations because they were all you know starving. Um, right. So that the guys, the, the Germans would fight until the last second, and then you know they'd put their hands up and, and be like, "Okay, we're done," and and we're right. hungry. Do you have anything to eat? Right. Um, of course, the, we do have accounts. Uh, I've I've read accounts across the lines of of um, not taking prisoners and everything. Um, but that, that's interesting. That's the first I've heard of that of where they they were scared to surrender to the Americans. That's. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's one data point. It would be interesting to would be interesting to get into the German Bundes archive and archive and uh, take a look at that a little bit more to to read these. I, I found this, uh, you know, the the mail sensor uh, extract that um, that Watson was using in his book to be quite quite interesting. It would really be worth following up on. And I'm I'm glad you brought up the name of that book because I've I've had that in my Amazon shopping cart for probably for about a year and a half and it, it runs about 40 bucks, I think. Um, but now I'm like, okay, clearly now we need to go and pick up that book and get it and get <laughs> if it. If you on. can get it for 40, go for it. The, uh, then that might be the paperback version now. Yeah. Uh, the hard copy way back when was, I think 135. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Yeah. A 40, 40 so if you can, if you can find it yeah, cheaper, go for it. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So we've got, we, we understand like the, the mental state of the German troops. This is one thing that that I'm always thinking of. One one aspect of this is so the next question here I've got is is how is the food situation for German troops at this point, which I, I have read some 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 accounts of. But what interests me a lot more is how is the ammunition supply and the delivery of of supplies to the front? Like in all of this fighting taking place in the Merzargon, it doesn't seem like the Germans are ever running out of ammunition. Is is that the case? And I know food was was terrible. I, I don't have good statistics on either. Um, is one answer, but okay. looking at um, you know, if you take a look at the two chapters that I've done in the book and and the other regimental histories that I've looked at for various parts of battles, I agree with you. I don't really see that ammunition. The shortage of ammunition wasn't the issue. The issue was the shortage of experienced leaders. And the shortage of um, shortage in in overall numbers. Yeah. Right. All right. And you mentioned here again um, talking about enduring the Great War. Like that's um, that's the book to to read up on. Talking about transport difficulties, and then another book here: Victory Must Be Ours: Germany in the Great War, nineteen fourteen eighteen, by Lawrence Moyer. Awesome. All right. I. And he was, I think he was a community college teacher in Connecticut. Uh, I always felt that that book did not get the credit that it deserves. I think it does a great job. The focus is on the home front, but it does a great job of looking at the German situation on the home front, especially. But he, he does usually in each chapter, he talks about a little bit about what's going on in the front. And then he goes into what's going on at the home front. And I've always thought that that book hasn't gotten the respect that it deserves for highlighting those issues. Oh, well, we'll make sure we get it in the notes. <laughs> uh, we'll have everyone buying a bunch of books here. Even, I mean, they're, they're old, but you know, a, a good book is still, I mean, Alistair Horne's Price of Glory is still a classic, um, you know. You know, to, to go off topic on that, when, when people ask me for a, a book to read about Verdun, I, I always send them there. And I, I do tell them, you know, it's dated, 
you know, it's from the 1960s, but to at least give you an idea of what it was like and how things happened, start yeah. there. And then you can get off into, you know, into the more modern uh, interpretations of the battle. So awesome. So Randy, you've mentioned your, your chapters in the book and um, that book is the companion book to right. Dr. Ed uh, Langell's um, uh, To Conquer Hell. And for those folks watching the video, um, it's called the Merz-Argonne Campaign. It's, it's the companion to the Merz-Argonne Campaign. So this came out in 2014. Um, I think uh, Lingell's To Conquer Hell, was it 98? Um, or it I mean, 98? 2000, 2008, 2008, not 98. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and uh, so it, it has 29 chapters covering a variety of topics uh, that couldn't be, he couldn't devote entirely to in his original book, To Conquer Hell. So I did two chapters on looking at two German infantry regiments. Okay. Marcus, Marcus Clower, who I do the tours with, he did one chapter focusing on the overall German high command um, in the area. And I, I will have to say, I think that was the best, he's, his chapter is the best concise overview of the German army high command in the Merz-Argonne that I've seen in English. Oh, fantastic. And really good. Really, really good summary. Solid summary. Right. And so you chose the, the two regiments that you wrote about are the 111th Infantry Regiment from the German state of Baden and then the 459th Infantry Regiment from the 16th Army Corps uh, region of Lorraine. And what, what about these regiments drew you to write about them? Sure. So the 111th was the first regiment that I portrayed as a reenactor. Oh, cool. And if you see the photo up behind me, that's yeah. me in uniform. I could probably bring it down, but that's me in uniform. The oh, I, I thought that was like a wartime photo. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was me dressed up. That, it, it was a, a good quality. Uh, I had a great photographer that helped work trying to get a period photo. That's super uh, cool. So, so the 111th, which was part of the 52nd Division at this point in time, okay. A, it was my reenacting unit, and B, the other thing that it's best known for is it was one of the regiments that participated in the counterattack against the 35th Division that routed the division okay. and led to the disintegration. Around at Exermont. Yeah. Okay. 459th, which was part of the 236th Division, its location was the Mers Argonne fighting right around Madeline Farm, Cunel, and Romagna. Um, so for me, for that one, it was clearly the location, um, clearly the location of where it was at. And that's why, going back to the original slide, that's why I selected that slide to start the uh, projection, was that's where the 236 was. Okay, so okay. They, that would have been those their huts um, in, that, in that photo there that we yeah. saw. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, excellent. All right. And how did these um, how did these regiments perform overall during the Merz-Argonne campaign? So here's a, a quick map just showing the, the regiment assaulting at Exermont. And again, it read, this focuses on the regiment only, not the entire division. Yep. Um, so in a nutshell, the 111th performed splendidly against the 35th division. But I would say it had little left to give by the time uh, when the 1st division moved in. Okay. And, and came in. So... In earlier in 1918, the 111th had fought in the Champagne in Flanders and the Somme, um, and then it had uh, rest area in Flanders in September. It was um, re-strengthened then 
I'm not sure exactly how many people it came into the Meuse-Argonne with. Um, one thing says that um, it replaced, um, several of the companies were replaced, and at that point, they were replaced with about 140 to 150 men per company, where a normal company strength would be 250. If you do that, you get as high as maybe 1,800 men in the regiment. Okay. But if the other units had lower strength, it would it wouldn't be that high. It might be 800 to 1,000. Anyways, on September 20th, it was ordered to Harris Group Galvitz, Army Group Galvitz, and it moved to Group Metz as reserve. And on the 26th, it was ordered to then go to Group Mers West. And if we just go back a little bit to that slide, whoops, um, you can see where Group Mers West was in the German Fifth Army. Gotcha. Yep. So, so you know, it moved first to, to Group Galvitz or to uh, Group Metz as a reserve, and then immediately, almost immediately, in a couple of days, it was moved back because it was needed, um, because it was needed in, in the Meuse-Argonne. And the reason for that was the, um, I'm forgetting the number of the division now that it had, um, that had retreated significantly along the Air River Valley. Um, so on the third, on the 29th and 30th, it attacked the 35th Infantry Division. Uh, um, and that's a very well-known story. I'm not going to go into a lot of details there. I yep. will say Major Wolf, who was the acting commanding officer, he received the Blue Max for the Orden pour la Marie. Um, for that assault on the 8th of October. So, you know, the German army was clearly very pleased with how that went. Um, right. But here's where its luck changes. The 1st Division gets replaced, replaces the 35th on the 1st of October, and they begin to attack on the 4th of October. Um, and from there on, it was almost constantly pushing the Germans back. I won't go into the details and, and do the movements along the slide, but if you follow the dates, if you read them in German style... Um, you'll see that it, they just can considerably go back further and further. further. And, um, you know, with regards to the attack on the 4th of October, the, um, the German regimental history says its attack, that is the 1st Division's attack, is as follows. It always advances through ravines, which are softened up by its artillery, and then it attacks the heights successfully from the rear. So clearly the 1st Division was a little bit, you know, had... had probably has the longest at this point, the, the longest combat history in France, and you know, was definitely much more familiar with combat. And uh, there's a lot that we could talk about there. But anyways, um, the infantry regiment and um, the, the 52nd German Infantry Division didn't fare as well against that. Um, one other thing is on October 4th, the 2nd Battalion of the 111th was practically eliminated. 255 men were missing. Now, it's funny, the regimental history goes a straight great length to say that later on they found out that only one officer and 100 men had been taken prisoners unwounded. So here's another example of where the Germans have surrendered. Um, most of the rest died fighting and a small number of wounded were taken prisoner. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure, but that's what the regimental history written some years later claims. Um, by the end of the 4th of October, that first day of the 1st Division attack, it was down to 180 men. Um, they get some replacements on October 5th and 6th. Basically, um, by the 9th, the, um, the headquarters was overrun. Uh, the commanding officer at that time, Oberstleutnant or Lieutenant Colonel Austin Wert, he remained in place waiting for a counterattack in his salvation. 
But at 10 a.m. in the morning of 10 October, he and his men were taken prisoner. So the whole the 52nd Division was withdrawn um, on 14th of October with heavy losses and almost 600 prisoners. The um, the division did have to enter the line again on the 31st of October to 1 November. Um, and it was still in the line on the 11th because as you know, the numbers were so weak that there were no absolutely no other reserves for it to do. So the AEF did an assessment of every division in a, there's a book that's called the history of the 251 divisions. Um, and um, their assessment was uh, they ranked it in 1918 as one of the best German divisions. Um, it was in a great deal of heavy fighting during 1918 as in preceding years and acquit acquitted itself most creditably. And so a big emphasis is on the fact that they were fighting the whole time. Um, my, uh, my closing paragraph would, reads as follows. Um, it would take weeks of unacceptably high casualties before most AEF units became effective combat forces capable of fighting and defending and defeating the experienced and disciplined German army on the terrain that favored the defender. IR-111 had the misfortune to fight on one of the AEFs, to fight against one of the AEF's most effective units uh, early in the battle. It paid the price, but only after it inflicted heavy casualties. Okay. And there's one quote that I forgot to read, and this was um, from the Lieutenant Colonel Oberstleutnant aus dem Wert, mm -hmm. uh, suggesting in, um, around the 7th of October, the uh, battle strength is practically zero. The troops were in position or were in combat since July with no significant break. They were psychologically worn down, physically exhausted by their efforts, bad nutrition, and they barely knew one another anymore. The new replacement troops were never or rarely under fire. They were poorly trained and one could not depend on them. As a result, they would run from any artillery fire in spite of vigorous efforts of the leaders. The whole weight of the battle was carried by a few leaders and the old Bodners. And I think that's, you know, when you read the regimental histories, that's really what you start feeling um, on ac across the lines, so to speak. Yeah. Wow. wow. So they, they were completely immolated in the in the fighting here. Yeah. Um, and now how about the, the 459th? Um, before we get into the story the the numbering system uh randy is there anything of significance with the number 459 is it is it just the the 459th regiment created by the german army or does it mean it was a, a reserve did it did it have a sort of different classification Ooh, uh i'm not sure this was a this was set up by the division um Let's see if you do 232, no, 236. I'm not sure on the on the infantry. Uh, this clearly was not one of the, this was a, this was a regiment that was created later. Okay. So That's what I the, yeah, the numbering um, off the top of my head, I forget the numbers for the ones that were created later, but they're definitely, uh, being this high in number would indicate that it was created later. Um, basically, I think in 1915, the um, the Germans created a bunch of new divisions, and then again in twenty seventeen, nineteen seventeen. Sorry, um, they created another set. So that was that was more the the feature. Okay, okay. I was just wondering. I just learned with the with the French army that the you would take a regiment, say um, 
like one that I know is is the the 315th Infantry Regiment of the French right. Army. That means that it's the reserve regiment for the 115th. So the French would just add 200 to the regimental number, and they would make the reserve regiment. Um, oh, interesting. It's twins. Like, and, and the Germans would have the same number. Like there's a 111th Infantry Regiment, mm-hmm. but there's also a 111th Reserve Infantry Regiment. That's so, the distinction. Yeah. And, and the Americans are so great because – if it was the 28th division, you multiply it by two and you get the brigades, the so 55th and 56th. Right, right. And you multiply by four and you get the the, the regiments. Yeah. Um, was it 28 by four is 112. So it's 109, 110, 111, 112, um, which makes it super easy. But the, the German the German numbering is a little bit more complicated. Oh, that's interesting. That's super cool. So the, the 459th, so how did they... How do they do uh, in the Mozargon? So they bore the brunt of very heavy fighting from the 29th of September to the 17th of October. Okay. And, and here's the map. Um, it's in German. It's it's from their uh, regimental history. Yep. Um, so you can see here, right right here, for instance, um, Infantry Regiment 136 on their right flank, and then the various units of the uh, of the division, and then Infantry Regiment 147 on the left flank. Mm-hmm. But the... Um, in the middle, the road is the road from Nantilwa to Kunel, and what okay. the Germans call Magdalenenhof, that's Madeline Farm. Madeline Farm. Ogan, Oganwald is Bois Ogan, mm-hmm. so, just to give you a little bit of an idea. Um, but they were formed in January 1917 from a mix of units. The garrison city was actually in Lipspringa, West Westfalen. They were in the line south of Ypres until the 13th of September. And by mid-September, they moved to... Uh, Grupa Michel in Army of Thailand C as a reserve division. So they moved over to Army of Thailand C. Okay. But when they were needed, then they were transferred west to uh, Group Mers West. Um, and on the 6th of, um, by 6 a.m. on the 30th of September, they had relieved an amalgamation uh, that were of units that were part of the uh, 117th German Infantry Division. And they were situated along both sides of the uh, Kunel. Uh, Kunel Nantowa Road, or here at Madeline Farm. And as I said, I mean, the, the fighting was really heavy. I don't want to get bogged down into the details. Um, but from the 4th through, they, they went into the line on the 30th of September. From the 4th of October, which is really when the next phase of the Mers-Argon kicked off, um, to the 12th, um, they, were, they were in pretty much constant combat. And I, I guess I would characterize this by... Um, Constant pressure to move backwards, um, commingling or brigading of troops to address the current situation. One thing when you read a lot of it is, um, yeah, it doesn't make sense to have a company with 15 men. So you you combine two companies or three companies, and and you move from three battalions to two or to combat groups. That type that type of thing to reflect that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, challenges to maintain liaison with the flanking units and frequent counterattacks. So, you know, it was very heavy fighting. Um, on the 12th of October, they were pulled out of the line and they were then to be used as an Eingreif division or a counterattack division just where needed. Okay. On the 20th of October, they were finally relieved only until the 1st of October and the, or 1st of November. And then they were put back into the line again, because by that time, there just was nothing there. So in late September... It had 36 officers and 941 men. 
for a regiment that again would have theoretically 33, 3,400 men. So that's, that's a, you know, it was at one third strength, if you want to call it that going into the fighting. Right. Um, on October 10th, it, or on a, late October, sorry, 20th of October, it had 10 officers and 254 men. Um, so their casualty rate was 72% of officers and 73% of the men. The other two regiments in that division suffered in the 60, mid 60% range. So all of them suffered very heavily. Um, and that just, I mean, it, you know, it, it's just mind boggling on the numbers. And, uh, the division was rated by the AEF in 1918 as third class. And their reasoning is apart from the fighting in the mirrors, the division did almost nothing notable. So it really didn't, it wasn't in that many keen battles in the rest of the fighting. But I, my closing statement was, um, given the numerical disadvantage and the exhaustion of the German troops, I would argue that IR-459 and its leaders put up a very respectable fight in defense during what the during what the Germans call the Abwehrschlacht or defensive battle in the Meuse-Argonne. It just didn't have that much, you know, it, it, by that time the numbers were just so low. Yeah, well, th- these two really show uh, the the effect uh, of the the state that the German army was in, and then the effects of the heavy combat in in the Meuse Argonne. I mean, we it's stunning to think of American divisions becoming combat ineffective within a few days, and we were massive divisions of twenty eight thousand men. So you can imagine an already understrength German regiments and divisions just being completely chewed up, like the the one hundred eleventh and the four hundred fifty ninth here. This is amazing. Just jumping on that, the, the, the 35th, their casualties were around 6,000 mm-hmm. in the first four days because it disintegrated. The um, the 1st Division were, I think they suffered over 7,000, well over 7,000 casualties in their stint in the line in the Merzargon. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, just imagine. And, and doubtless a lot of that came from their rifle strength as well, right? Yeah. Is, yep. <laughs> that we can talk about when we get to the statistics one. Yeah, um, which yeah, which really casualties relative to uh, looking at infantry regiments, looking at uh, machine gun companies, and looking at artillery regiments. I really look forward to, to that. And unfortunately, the PBI, the poor bloody infantry, bears the brunt of the casualties. So, Randy, um, final question here. Uh, so what is your take on German resistance in the last weeks of World War One? So I'm going to sound like a German sympathizer here, but I still I still marvel at the German army in the Meuse-Argonne that it held out as long as it did. Um, you know, certainly it had terrain and experience on its side, at least until the senior veterans were killed or surrendered. Mm-hmm. Um, it had American inexperience on its side. But the relative numbers, when you take a look at just about any fighting and and um, Le Chien Tendu against the hundred the the twenty uh, eighth division and in um, the Lost Battalion, you know another great story. Um, it just in every situation, the numbers were just greatly in favor of the of the Americans. Um, so you know the Germans had fighting ability. Um, Marcus Clower, in the last paragraph of his chapter, reads this way. Despite their eventual failure, the merit of German forces remained undiminished given the circumstances. They had fought against an army nearly four times their strength for a period of nearly six weeks. 
The sacrifices made by the soldiers of the 5th Army have likely preserved the whole Western Front from complete collapse. And I'm going to switch to this. Um, At the very least, if the 5th Army had not held onto its position for as long as it did in this sector, a significant part of the German forces would probably have been cut off, with large numbers of them undoubtedly becoming prisoners. And this map, it's awfully crowded to show on a computer, Mm-hmm. But the circle, the big black circle, shows the uh, Mezier-Sedan railway links. Right. And if I were to scan this higher, you you see that there are relatively few train lines running from west to east to get the German, the retreating German army back. And that's why holding that train line was such an important part, uh, such an important factor. And that's really what Marcus is talking about uh, when that large numbers of Germans would have been cut off if they had not held on the Luzarga. And I'll have one final quote, and this is from Robert Asprey, who wrote The German High Command at War. Um, Very sympathetic, the exact same thing that I said, basically. That the German army did its best to carry out Ludendorff's foot-by-foot withdrawal is a credit to its professional leadership and almost incredible loyalty of the combat troops. It is difficult to read the records today and not weep for the victims of yesterday. I'm not sure our doughboys would have felt the same way, but a hundred years later, you can certainly look at it that way. No, I thought I thought that was a very poignant sentence when I when I read your notes here this morning. So, oh, perfect! You've got a bibliography here too. This is great. So, so just yeah, just to have a little bit, and you can put this on the, in the notes too if you want. These are some of the better books in terms of helping understand what was going on. Um, there's one I didn't put on that I probably should, and that is The AEF Way of War by Mark uh, Gretelushin, another really good study at how the Americans came up to speed looking at four infantry divisions um, okay. and how they learned as the war progressed to, to fight. And I've got one good slide for the end. I, I thought this this is a, you know, it's a uh, dead German um, wizard. Un, unburied German dead north of Danvu. Um, I thought this was just a good way of ending. And this was on the uh, February 12th, 1919. Right. And I'm sure he wasn't the only one on both sides, you know, and in 1919, the people that are just returning to the battlefields, they're not worried about burying a dead as much as they are trying to figure out where they're going to eat and sleep and how they're going to survive. Right, right. And, and in the case of French locals, like they're certainly not going to worry about uh, uh, a dead German invader, you know, exactly. rotting out in their fields. Um, yeah. yeah. Tough time. Yeah. Wow. That is a that is an excellent photo. Uh, grim, really grim. <laughs> yes. But, but it, you know. I, I think for, you know, for this, the, the especially the last couple of weeks of the war, this, you know, it, it was a very grim time for the German army. Yeah, seriously. And and I, I think w- what you've presented here this afternoon, I think it's really highlighted that like that they it, it is amazing that they held out as long as they did uh, against the Americans. I have never thought of how Marcus Glauer put it, that he that you know what the German Fifth Army did basically helped helped save everybody else for, for right. a time. Right. So that's that's amazing. Awesome. Awesome. Randy, I. I Thank you so much for uh, for coming on here again um, and and having this talk with me. This is this has been fantastic. Um, this is great information. And folks, um, do 
download the podcast episode, but this will also be up on YouTube. So, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be putting it out on the Facebook, uh, Merzargon Facebook group, uh, as well as other points and, and like definitely, definitely check it out and watch it. Like the, the slides that Randy put together are really something else, just full of information. And, um, you'll, you'll get the references that we're talking about here. Um, so Randy, thank you. Thank you yes, so much. You're welcome. And I look forward to the statistical one. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about timing on that. And yeah, uh, yeah. Same. As soon as we stop recording, we'll, we'll chat about that real quick. And, um, <laughs> so there is one last thought that I just have to say, and, and, um, so I, I've held out long enough, but it's, it's time to make spray cheese references. So, um, if you get that, I get to reply, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I have an, a, I have a, a very childish vision of, um, you know, I, again, folks, for everybody listening, like, like, so Randy, Randy and Marcus Clower, they, they run knee deep into history. R- Rob Laplander and I, we do lost battalion. Tour. I'll do a cheat little tour here too, or a quick little uh, blurb, but go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Back. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, <sighs> Oh my God. Are, are we competitors? Dear God, no. Like, I think, I think the, the Merzargon is big, big enough for, for uh, everyone and each, you know, everybody, um, you guys bring it, bring an excellent perspective, um, to, to what you do. Um, that being said, thank you. I, thank you. I, I, yeah. I do. I mean, I, look, judging by the number of uh, podcasts you've done, you're no, uh, no slouch yourself, you and Rob. I mean, <laughs> but I do, um, do you guys, Randy, do you know that stuff, um, that silly string, it like comes yes. in a can. Yeah, yes. I, I, I do have this vision of uh, of us meeting like in the square of Cornell and like just oh, just busting out cans of spray cheese. And the spray cheese listeners is is a long story that that we don't have to get into, but one that that rang. Oh, about. we can. Laplander's not here to defend himself. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me, no, in October of 1918, Rob and I did a tour together, and. <laughs> There was one day where I sent Rob to go get the uh, food for the lunch, and uh, he comes back with some very unFrench cheese. In That's, France, <laughs> in France, yes. And it's <laughs> Rob, really? You, you know, for for hand, you couldn't get Emmental or Swiss, you know. It, and that's that's part of where this joke comes from. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely. So it's oh, been a running joke between between us. Yeah, I, I understand that that you now get Christmas presents of cheese from Wisconsin. He has sent me, yes. Yes. <laughs> I have to think of something uh, something good from Virginia. I mean, I could send him peanuts, which, you know, could imply that he's nuts. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should send him some peanuts from Virginia. Oh, my God, I'll definitely... <laughs> That's where the that's where the cheese uh, comes from. The cheese joke, yes. Oh man, that's fantastic, All right. Randy. Thank you so much again for coming on and. and um, And we'll have you back on again soon in in no time. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks for hosting me.